welcome everyone to another episode of the Next Gen Podcast Series. My name is Yamil Haidar, and I will be your host this evening. I'm a financial intelligence officer with US Century Bank for the last eight and a half years, and I'm also the co-chair of the Next Gen Committee. Our mission statement is very simple. We look for young professionals in the compliance industry, along with related industries in the United States, but more specifically, South Florida. Uh, this evening, we're going to have the pleasure of hearing from Pamela Clegg, who is an cryptocurrency expert. Uh, Ms. Pamela Clegg, if you could go ahead and give us a quick introduction of yourself. Yeah. Hi, my name is Pamela Clegg. I'm the Vice President of Financial Investigations for CypherTrace. For those that don't know CypherTrace, we're a blockchain analytics company. We are headquartered out in Silicon Valley in California. Uh, I've been with the company for over three years living and breathing crypto and crypto investigations and training and regulations, everything that has to do with crypto AML. Prior to joining Secretaries, I spent two years in the banking uh, in the banking sector as the BSA AML officer for a large community bank in Texas. And then prior to that, I spent a decade with US government, mostly overseas, mostly counter-narcotics and counter-terrorism focused. Excellent, excellent. So <clears throat> without further ado, we'll get started. Um, you know, we've seen the cryptocurrency world and, and industry really explode in the last five years, I would say. Uh, we're seeing more companies adopt uh, retail payments for crypto. Uh, we're seeing just regular everyday people using it as an investment. Uh, with that being said, you know, can you give us a quick overview of the crypto market, uh, how much is grown in the last five years and the market cap that it currently uh, sits at? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So current market capitalization today is $1.7 trillion. Now that includes all cryptos, right? And this source for this is, is CoinMarketCap. Uh, CoinMarketCap is a pretty well used website um, that gives kind of just gives market updates and market overview. Um, overall, we're looking at uh, 17,000 plus cryptos. Now those are based on liquidity pairs. So those are gonna be, you know, your crypto Bitcoin pegged to Ethereum or Bitcoin pegged to US dollars. So you're looking at liquidity pairs, you're looking at over 17,000. And then when we talk about um, volume, I think that's where we get into some really interesting numbers. You know, market capitalization kind of gives us this big broad stroke overview. Um, but when we talk about 24-hour volume, we're looking at 62 billion today, somewhere just north of that $60 billion 24-hour volume. So that really tells us, you know, how much is being moved and how much is being circulated in that 24 hours. Very good. So... I think a few years ago, some of us in the compliance industry had some doubts if there was cryptocurrency uh, in our institution. I think based on that statement and based on the size, the sheer size of the market cap and how many transactions flow in and out daily, uh, that's no longer a doubt, but a fact, right? And it's really up to us to start looking into it and kind of peel back the, the layers and really start digging for these cryptocurrency transactions and really flag them correctly in our systems. Um, in addition to that, you know, we're starting to see financial institutions sort of take a right step towards cryptocurrency transactions and, and somewhat of, of a uh, regulation when it comes to cryptocurrency. We've seen FinTech come out with a number of notices in regards to virtual assets. Uh, most currently, we saw the IRS come out with a disclosure form for virtual assets. So, you know, my, my general question is, how can a financial institution mitigate the risk posed by cryptocurrency? How can they see that? What role do they play in this? Uh, crypto world that we're seeing? Yeah, that's a really important question. So I think it's important to know, you know, crypto has been regulated since 2013, right? The initial guidance from FinCEN came out in 2013. We have seen some updated um, 
guidance as far as what banks can actually do with crypto come out from the OCC. Though there were three interpretive letters that came out in 2020 and then in January of 2021, we had another interpretive letter from the OCC in November of just this past year, so November of 2021 as well. The OCC says um, banks can engage in stablecoin use, banks can hold reserves for stablecoins, and also banks can custody crypto. Now, that is obviously banks getting directly involved with cryptocurrency. If your bank has not yet decided to take that path, understandably so, right? Although I would say most of your top banks are exploring the use of stable coins and crypto custody. So that do understand, you know, the way the tide is moving. But even if your bank is not directly engaging with cryptocurrency, you still have these intersections, as you mentioned, Yamil, right? So um, the, this $1.7 trillion market capitalization, the way that we move in and out of the crypto ecosystem generally falls on the shoulders of traditional financial payments, okay? So if I want to buy, for example, a Bitcoin, which today's price is around $43,000, $44,000, the way that I actually get my fiat, in this case, US dollar, to a Coinbase or a Gemini to buy that Bitcoin is I'm going to use traditional traditional financial payment rails, right? So I'm going to use a wire transfer, an ACH. They're going to draft it on my bank account. Maybe I can use a credit card. Any of those other types of payment methods are what we're using to do what we call on-ramp or off-ramp in and out of the crypto world. And so all the banks have these intersections, whether they like it or not, because if you look at the numbers of people that are investing in crypto, owning crypto, using crypto in some way, it just goes, I mean, it just goes without saying that you have at least one customer, many customers at your bank that are engaged in cryptocurrency in some way or another, and they are buying and selling that crypto using their funds from their bank accounts. So you mentioned stable coins. <laughs> yeah. A few of our listeners, uh, you know, I'm not sure if they're too familiar with them. Uh, myself included. So can you give us a quick overview of stable coins, what role they have, how they're different from all the other tokens? Yeah, so let's talk about stable coins because they're really interesting use case, especially with the way that they are already impacting the banking sector and the way that they're going to impact the banking sector. So a stable coin is a type of cryptocurrency. It's technically a token, but we call them stable coins instead of stable tokens, but they're technically a token. They offer price stability, right? So one of the biggest complaints about Bitcoin, and we've heard people say this even up on the hill, right, is the volatility. Oh, the volatility of, of you know, the price of Bitcoin or the price of, you know, any other crypto that's out there, this, this speculative nature of these. Um, so stable coins aim to take out that uh, factor. They are pegged to some type of external value. In the case of stable coins, really with regard to banks, we are focused on the stable coins that are pegged to the US dollar. What does that mean? That means that one stable coin like USD coin or like Tether or like Gemini dollar, one of those coins has the value of $1. And the way that they are able to secure that value is that the stable coin issuer keeps dollar reserves that equal the amount of coins in circulation. So for example, if we talk about USD coin. As of today, USD coin has 52 billion USD coins in circulation. That means that Center, the Center Consortium, who backs USD coin, which is backed by Coinbase and Circle, that means that consortium 
must have $52 billion in reserve in some form, whether that's cash reserves or whether that's commercial paper that's to be determined, right, by the consumer, which is one of the challenges of a stable coin, but they must have those dollars in reserve to peg to each one of those stable coins in circulation. And then those coins are used for payments. They're used to move in and out of different protocols. They're, they're used whenever investors are moving maybe from one DeFi platform to another one, and they need to be able to move with a stable value. They don't want that value to fluctuate while they're you know, moving to a different protocol or they're engaging in some other investment or something of that nature. And what's really interesting about stable coins, and I think this says a lot about where we're going with stable coins, is you know, the most circulated cryptocurrency out there is not Bitcoin. The most circulated cryptocurrency out there is actually Tether, which is the leading stablecoin, 78 billion or so Tether in circulation. Okay, so when we look at Tether, it's 24-hour volume, it's $50 billion as of today. It was its 24-hour volume, 50 billion in volume, whereas Bitcoin was only 20 billion. Right. So Tether is usually at least double the, the circulation that we see with Bitcoin. So I think that's really important to understand that that circulation of Tether is not for investment or speculation or anything of that nature. Right. It's pegged to the dollar. It's being used for all these other applications, being used for payments, being used for DeFi. It's being used to purchase, you know, uh, maybe NFTs, things like that. Other other um, features out there, other decentralized applications that are that are useful. Very good, very good. There's a couple of terms there that I want to go back to. One of them being DeFi. Right? I think it's really important in our financial industry to kind of understand for our listeners. Who, so if you could just give us a, a 30,000 feet overview of what DeFi stands for, how it is, and how it's related to the financial industry. Sure. So DeFi stands for Decentralized Finance. And what it aims to do is to uh, recreate traditional financial systems like lending, borrowing, banking, insurance, with self-executing crypto contracts we call smart contracts, right? So what it aims to do really is to take out that human bias, that human interference and that human slowdown that we tend to have in financial systems. And it really just speeds it up so that you can now create things like flash loans, where maybe I just need a loan for 24 hours, or maybe I just need a loan for an hour. Um, so you can create, uh, you can get a flash loan, you can do lending, and when I say lending, you know, we're not paying out interest every month, we're paying out interest every minute, or maybe we're paying out interest every block, you know, every time there's a block added to that respective blockchain or however that protocol is set up. So there's a lot of really interesting things that are happening in the DeFi space. And one of the things I think that is really having an impact on the banking sector when it comes to DeFi, number one, is DeFi is able to it's, it's not beholden to the Fed, right? It's not beholden to the Fed when we talk about interest rates. So I can go out to Gemini, Gemini, a cryptocurrency exchange based in New York. I can, you know, give them, you know, $200,000, $200, convert that $200,000 into say Gemini dollar, which is their stable coin. And then I can tell Gemini, I want to, I want to enter into the Gemini earn program, which basically means I'm willing to lock up that money for, you know, a certain amount of time. And Gemini will turn around and take that, take that crypto out to the DeFi world, and they will be able to pay me up to 8% APY, doing exactly what banks do, right? Banks take our deposits, and then they turn right around, and they loan, they loan money off of those deposits. That's how banks make money, 
right? The primary way that, that banks make money. Same concept. Gemini is functioning as the bank here. They're taking my money. They're converting that into uh, a crypto that they can then use out in the DeFi space. And then they're going out and they're earning me 8% APY as the customer, as the holder of those funds. And so that's something that we really see impacting banks right now, um, just because, you know, banks are beholden to the Fed interest rate. And obviously the interest rate right now is, is still on the floor. Um, so, you know, I could keep my money in a bank earning, you know, less than half a percent, or I could take it out to, you know, one of these exchanges. Some exchanges pay all the way up to 14% APY. It just depends on, on how risky you're willing to go. Um, you know, or you can go very conservative, you know, Coinbase's numbers are, are, are very much more conservative down around 4%. Um, but you kind of have, you know, less risk associated with that. You mentioned Gemini and you mentioned Coinbase. Um, I think as compliance individuals, we've seen a lot of those brokers and transactions with those brokers. Uh, based on your experience, and again, uh, as much as you can share, what brokers would you say out there that are out there that are, you know, the more reputable? I know Coinbase is very good with law enforcement and things like that. Uh, you know, is it the U.S.-based brokers? Is it the ones that are, you know, in other countries? What would you say about the brokers? Yeah, so I think it's really important to understand. It's a really great point. You know, identifying these transactions in your payment rails is step number one, right? Number two, like you said, is, okay, now I, I see these payments going to a Coinbase or I see these payments going to Gemini. How do I risk rate this? How do I assess risk associated with those payments? Number one, um, the number one thing I always say is, First of all, is this within expected behavior? Is this within the expected financial means of your customer, right? So that's number one. If your customer makes, you know, minimum wage and here they are sending out, you know, $10,000 a month to Coinbase or Gemini, well, that doesn't fall within the expected behavior or the expected transactions for your customer. So that's red flag number one. But if it does fall within your customer's you know, financial means. And this is something, okay, yeah, sure. They have the disposable income to send, you know, $5,000 a month to Coinbase or 10 grand a month to, to Gemini, what have you. Um, then let's look at the, let's look at the exchange that they're choosing to use. I like to call these exchanges, the bridges. These are the bridges between the fiat world and the crypto world. So which bridge is your customer choosing to use and why? How safe is that bridge or how risky is that bridge? There might be a reason why they're picking a riskier bridge because maybe that bridge, maybe that particular exchange will kind of let them get away with more in the crypto side, right? Once they buy the crypto, then they can go off and do stuff on dark markets or they can go off and do, you know, more criminal activity because maybe that exchange doesn't care. Now, exchanges within the U.S. that either are based in the U.S. or just even serve U.S. persons as customers, right, offer services to U.S. persons are required to register with FinCEN. They have to register as a money service business with FinCEN. And if you are a registered money service business, obviously then you have to maintain an effective AML program and report your suspicious activity and all that kind of good stuff that's required of an MSB. One of the other key factors that I like to look for, and this is all publicly available information, I'm not um, you know, giving you anything that you need proprietary tools to do. But another thing you can do is go see if that exchange is registered for 314B, right? Because um, exchanges can register for 314B. So are they registered? Which means if they are, then they welcome communication from other financial institutions, right? They are open to actively working through compliance issues or discussing suspicious activity, things of that nature. And I can tell you, you know, the, the Coinbase's, the Gemini's, the Bittrex's, 
of the US, they are registered for 314B and they do um, have those communications. And then, you know, their compliance teams, we, we've seen numbers out of FinCEN on the number of SARS and the increase in the number of SARS coming from crypto MSBs, right? And they are really stepping up their compliance programs. Um, you know, they do, as an MSB, they do have examinations, right? They fall under, you know, the IRS, um, small business it, it does the examinations of our MSBs. Um, so they do have regulatory obligations. And most of the ones in the US do take those necessary steps. Now, overseas, you know, crypto regulation, uh, to put it mildly, is uneven around the globe, right? We, we do have FATA, Financial Action Task Force, that has put out recommendations. Um, some, you know, they, they put those out in June 2019 for virtual assets. They updated them just this uh, past November. Um, but, you know, those are, again, recommendations. It's FATF, right? What they do is they recommend um, uh, regulatory um, requirements and, 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 and rules around the globe. But um, there are still lots of countries where there is no crypto regulation uh, whatsoever. And so it is a, a bit of a mixed bag when it comes to looking at exchanges overseas or if your customers are sending money overseas to overseas exchanges. Very good. I, I think you touched on a very good point. Um, financial institutions should definitely seek out 314B communication, right? So it's something that FinCEN has stressed and other regulatory bodies for us to kind of utilize this, this com communication service that's out there to reach out to Coinbase, to reach out to other exchange brokers and really gain more information. You'll be surprised. Uh, we've gotten some feedback from law enforcement how thorough of an investigation a broker like um, Coinbase is mm -hmm. and how much information they're able to obtain from the customers and and share some of that information. That's a very, very good point. Uh, Pamela, shifting a little bit to another, maybe three letter word that a lot of people have heard, but don't know what it means. Can we talk about NFTs, right? <laughs> what they are, you know, what they stand for. Uh, there's recently been cases of NFTs being used for money laundering. Um, in your experience of what you're seeing out there, you know, what can you tell us about NFTs? Yeah, I would say in the NFT world, what we've really kind of seen is more of like a wash trading or more of a almost like a pump and dump situation. So that really falls more under the SEC um, as far as, uh, you know, enforcement. Um, you know, a pump and dump would just be, hey, I'm going to drive up the price on this NFT by, you know, generating interest or having lots of people buy it. But really, it's just me buying it, um, you know, and kind of kind of uh, faking this interest or faking this desire to own this NFT. And then eventually somebody else buys um, that NFT at an inflated price or something of that nature. Um, but really for NFTs, you know, FATF did come out and FinCEN is still under, you know, has, has mostly agreed with FATF in that update that I mentioned that FATF just put out. They did say that NFTs are not generally considered to be virtual assets unless they are specifically being used for payments or um, investments. So, um, you know, if you go out and you buy an art piece, Right. If you buy one of the um, one of the gorilla ones or something like that, you, you want to buy a piece of art, NFT art um, that is not going to necessarily fall under um, virtual currency, virtual asset. Um, and I would say one of the other things that banks really just need to pay attention to is, you know, are your customers able to buy the NFTs with fiat or are they actually going through a platform like OpenSea where they already have to be in crypto? So then they're buying crypto somewhere else. You might not even know that your customer is buying NFTs um, because they may be going to, you know, say, you know, Kraken exchange and buying the crypto and then going out to the, to the platform and then purchasing 
uh, the NFT with crypto. Um, so, you know, banks aren't necessarily expected to know for sure that their customer is buying NFT. The only exception there would be, again, if an NFT platform is allowing customers to on-ramp, to buy directly with fiat, like maybe a credit card or something of that nature, that would be really the only intersection that we're currently seeing. That makes, um, that makes a lot of sense. I think as compliance professionals, we, you know, we see these terms and you know, their industry is moving so quickly and we're like, did we miss something? Should we look, go back and see some information? Uh, you know, based on our experience, we are seeing transactions with certain brokers. Uh, they're reputable brokers, but you're absolutely right. Um, it is something that's ever evolving and it's something that uh, is subject to change. Uh, as far as uh, the due diligence, just be, you know, if you have a customer that's purchasing NFTs, do your due diligence, you know, try to look for market research, try to see if the price is commensurate with the actual uh, amount of the wire or the transaction. Um, again, it's a little bit easier said than done because you could run into the risk of overpricing and underpricing uh, for money laundering. But, you know, I think that's what we could do for what we have at the time. Um, Pamela, just to kind of bring everything together and, and kind of wrap up all the information that you've given us. I know that you're familiar with regulators. I know you provide training to some of them. What do you see the compliance industry in the next five years as it relates to crypto? What do you see regulation heading? Is it Are we at, at the beginning stages? Are we in the middle or in the tail end? Can you share us on that? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's really important to understand where we are on the timeline. That's a really good point. So, you know, this whole concept of the modern cryptocurrency, starting with Bitcoin, kicked off in 2009. And here we are in 2022. So we're really, you know, a lot of people, you're going to see a lot of, if you go out on the internet and you Google, you'll see a lot of people compare it to, you know, the early phases of the internet. What was the internet like when it, you know, when we were, you know, 12 years in, 13 years in, um, compared to, you know, crypto, here we are 13 years in. Um, so, you know, what have we seen as far as use cases? We definitely kind of have seen similar evolution. Um, you know, when you go back and, and you look at the 2013 timeframe, look at the 2014 timeframe of crypto, you know, there was definitely a more nefarious um, perception of it because of Silk Road and because of the uses on, you know, dark markets and all these other kind of, of use cases that have been out there. And then, you know, as we saw with the internet as well, we see this kind of um, adoption and we see this acceptably, we see other use cases come up, other use cases that really make a lot of sense like payment settlements. Um, things like that, that we see with stable coins. I firmly believe, um, you know, and, and the Fed really kind of highlighted this a little bit in their report that they just put out um, a couple of weeks back, that stable coins are definitely going to be the payments of the future. Um, and this is going to be for, you know, to replace things, you know, think about wire transfers, think about, you know, micro payments, things of that nature, where that's going to go cross-border remittances um, of, of the use cases that are out there for, um, cryptocurrencies like stablecoins. Um, right now, we're just seeing a huge clamoring for training and understanding from the banking sector, right? So the banking sector wants to understand this technology. They want to understand the impact that it's having on their institution. And then they want, just like you said, they want to start to see where this is going to go and how they can really get themselves prepared for it. I would say, you know, as an AML professional, definitely at least start to get the basics down, right? Get the basics, understand, because, you know, once we have the top, you know, 20 banks, the top 25 banks using stable coins, 
um, that's going to trickle down. And it, it, it already has, it already skipped, right? Um, one of the well-known cases right now is USDF, USD Forward, um, which is a stable coin that New York Community Bank and other banks, Sterling Bank, there's, there's a consortium of, of banks that are in on this stable coin. They've already gone out and created their own stable coin, right? And they're not top 25 banks. They're, you know, smaller banks, but they were like, hey, this is where we need to be. This is, this is the vision. This is the future. So they've already done that. They've already kind of jumped, you know, jumped the line and they're already in that. And I've also heard the same requests from, again, smaller community banks as well. Hey, we want to maybe create our own stable coin, or maybe we want to adopt a stable coin, um, but we're definitely looking at this and we want to bank digital assets. Um, so it's, you know, and that's from asset size of a billion all the way up to, um, you know, to our top, our top banks in the U.S. So it's really having an impact on everybody. So number one, again, is education, education, education. Um, make sure you're getting educated from a reputable source. And I say this as an AML professional, um, you know, uh, but also as a crypto professional. So, you know, if you want to learn crypto, go to the crypto people. Um, that's really, you know, we can we can talk about AML red flags all day, but um, you know, really, it's important to to really have that tech explained to you in a in a way that is digestible, in a way that's understandable. Um, and and I definitely would recommend seeking out um, the those those resources. The exchanges have good resources. They most of the exchanges, Coinbase and Gemini, have like learning centers on their websites. Um, and then of course, you know blockchain analytics companies like CypherTrace, as well as the others that are out there. We're not the only game in town, but the, we, we all put out, you know, crypto AML reports or quarterly reports or just kind of updated reports on, you know, financial crime and crypto. Those are all free. You can download them from, you know, all of the respective websites. So those are all really good resources for kind of just getting up, up to speed. Excellent. Very good. I think we're touching on a lot of points. There's a lot to unpack there. Uh, but now, unfortunately, we don't have enough time to kind of go through everything in detail. Um, I do want to thank you for your time, Pamela, um, also other associates for FIBA. If you have any key takeaways or any final thoughts, go ahead and share them now. Yeah, um, you know, just a big, don't be scared of it. Uh, you know, once you get in and kind of start to understand it, it's just, you know, it's, it's just evolution and change. Uh, I saw an expression the other day, you know, embrace the happiness that change can bring. Right. So um, embrace some of the good positive pieces of crypto, which is, you know, traceability, um, the ability to, you know, to tr trace original source of funds and to look at the destination of crypto a lot more effectively than you can do with fiat. Um, so there are definitely positives. Um, don't, you know, just be open minded about uh, about embracing this new technology. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you again. And I think that wraps it up for today. Great. Thanks, guys. Pamela, thank you so much. Uh, and Diana, as soon as Tanya has the questions or the answers to those questions, um, we'll send it right over to you guys.